So we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31. Last week we thought we were going to take the whole section, but time foiled us. So we're going to look at verses 26 through 31 this evening. In a study I'm calling, Read and Heed the Warning. Read and Heed the Warning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this place that we can gather together to study it. But we're so blessed to have your entire word, the whole counsel of, of your revelation. And Lord, we don't want to, as Paul said, peddle the word. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted, Lord, but we want to take it and study it verse by verse, word by word, Lord, that we can glean from the text, Lord, what it says and apply it to our life. And so, Lord, we know that you have a message, Lord, that you gave the Hebrews. And from that, Lord, we want to understand that so we can apply it to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you become desensitized by warning labels? If you live in California, it's pretty easy to be desensitized by warning labels. I say that because it seems like every product we use, food establishment we visit, or, you know, our clothing we buy has some label on it that says, warning, this material or food is known to cause cancer in the state of California. It's like everywhere you look, it's like, you know, I'm eating a McDouble. I look over and there's a sign right there. This causes cancer in the state of California. Now, if you're like me, your response is twofold, one of two things. Number one, I don't really trust the label. I'm like, yeah, it's probably just some legal thing, right? Prop 86 or whatever it is, you know, that, that they have to put up. You know, they have to put that up there. And second, I don't really worry about it because everything causes cancer, right? So, so what, what am I supposed to do? Now, not downplaying cancer in any way, but, you know, it just seems like it's everywhere. You know, the signs are everywhere. Now, this is not how the Hebrews were to understand this fourth warning given by the writer of Hebrews. They weren't to ignore it. It wasn't just a sign that they couldn't trust nor was it something that they had no opportunity to avoid. But rather, God in his word is going to teach them that they need to heed his warning because he's true. And they could avoid this warning by not going back but pressing forward to the work in, in the word of God. And so that's what the Lord wants to speak to us tonight. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to learn two things. Number one, that God's warnings can be trusted. And number two, second, God's warnings can be applied. So first in verses 26 to 31, we see that God's warnings can be trusted. Now the context of any passage is essential. It's like Bible 101, right? What does the context say? What does it mean in light of the whole book, in light of the chapter, in light of the verse? What, what is it talking about, right? You can't just isolate a verse from the meaning of the chapter and, you know, make up you know, whatever you want to say about it, but you have to read it in context. You have to read it in this historical context. You have to read it in light of the book. If you don't do that, it can lead you to some false understandings. And we have this problem with this passage tonight in the book of Hebrews. Often this verse can be taken to teach false things about the nature of God and the nature of a person's salvation. So let's begin by reviewing this historical context before we get into this passage and start um, breaking it down. As we've seen so far, the book of Hebrews is dealing with Hebrews, that is Jewish people who were saved out of Judaism. They became Christians. They left Judaism and now they were following Christ. They were no longer under the law, they were following Christ in his grace. 
Now, these people grew up with a sense of Jewish national pride. They grew up with an obligation to follow the law and the different temple sacrifices and rituals. It was part of who they were. It was ingrained in them. Now, one day, these guys came in contact with the gospel, and their whole life was changed. They left Judaism, they left sacrifices, now they were following Christ. They were learning what it meant to follow Christ. Sometimes we're pretty hard on these Jewish believers. But we have to understand that they didn't have the entire Bible like we do. They were following God and following the teachings of the apostles, and they were learning what it meant to follow Christ under the new covenant, under grace, as they were walking you know, with him. So they were learning, and the writer was instructing them. Now, just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 10, these Jewish believers were persecuted. Jesus told the disciples there, he says, hey guys, this is what it's going to be like when I leave, when you go out. You're going to be like sheep among wolves. And so he, he exhorted them, he said, hey listen, you're going to receive persecution, maybe even from those of your own house, but you need to follow me. And just as Jesus predicted, they were. They were being persecuted. You see that in verses 32 through um, 39. 32 through 39, it says there that they were, they had their goods confiscated from them. They were receiving trials and persecutions. They were suffering for the name of Jesus. It says right after they were illuminated, you see that in verse 32. After you were illuminated, you received these persecutions. It wasn't like, hey, get saved, and as a new believer, you're not going to receive any kind of persecution. No, right after they got saved, it was like, bam, the next day almost. It seemed like they were suffering for Jesus. Now, to make matters worse, these Jewish believers were living in a time of Jewish patriotism and Jewish nationalism. From the year 64 to 66 AD, the Jews began rallying and eventually revolting against the Roman Empire. By year 66 AD, they had ousted the Romans out of Jerusalem and Judea. And then that led to the judgment in 70 AD when Rome came in and destroyed the temple and killed over a million Jews. But it was during this time, around 64, when pockets of resistance began building up, when the Jews began rallying. And here was these Jewish believers. They're not involved in Judaism anymore. They're separated from that. And they're also separated from the Commonwealth of Israel because Israel didn't want anything to do with them because they were excommunicated because they thought that they were heretics. They thought they were in a cult following this Messiah named Jesus. And so in one sense, they were... They, the, the Jews believed they were having a false teaching. In another sense, they thought that they were sympathetic to Rome because they weren't joining their causes. All this pressure caused them to be persecuted. And this pressure was causing some to turn away from Christianity and to go back to Judaism. We saw, we saw that in verse 25, where we left off last week. Some have actually forsaken the assembly of believers. In other words, they said, hey, we're going to go back to Judaism. We're, we're not going to come to the, the assembly anymore to meet with believers. We don't want to be associated with them because it could bring persecution. We're going to go back to Judaism that we can relieve our sufferings and have peace and joy. Well, the writer wrote to them and said, rather than going back, they needed to press forward and they needed to exhort each other or warn each other to press forward. Why? Because notice the end of verse 25, as they see that day approaching. Now, I believe in the context, the best way to understand that day is the day that Christ spoke about, the day when judgment will come on that nation which had rejected him, that generation, as we'll see as we work through this passage. So that's the background of this passage, and I think it helps us to understand it as we work through these verses. 
So let's begin in verse um, 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So those who follow the example of those in verse 25 who forsake the assembling of believers and turn to Judaism, they would be committing a willful sin. I like that the writer doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells it like it is. He says, hey guys, you guys think this is great and it might seem good to you, but you know what? It's sin, plain and simple. And sometimes we just need to be real with people as people are doing things. We just say, hey man, that's sin. If you don't repent of it, it's, it's not gonna be good. It's willful sin. You're turning your back on the Lord and on his word. It's important to note that the writer is addressing not an accidental slip, but it's a premeditated decision. And so this isn't like a one-time fall, like, oh man, I accidentally you know, did this or that. No, this is a premeditated decision. Scholars say, and some of your translations might have it, that this verse can be translated, if we go on willingly sinning. It's, it's a deliberate decision to go on willingly sinning. What is the sin he's talking about? Well, the sin is in, is in direct relationship to the knowledge of the truth that they had been receiving. Now, all willful sin is bad, right? And, and it's against God's word. It's in God's face. We know it's wrong, but yet we choose to cross the line and say, hey, I know the Bible says it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyways. That's, that's a willful sin. But in the context here, the willful sin is against the knowledge of the truth, what the writer has been teaching them what they have been learning about Christianity, about Christ. So far, we've seen that Christ is the fulfillment and greater than anything in Judaism, right? Greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the priesthood, greater than the sacrifice, greater than the temple, all these things. They had a clear witness to them that there was nothing left in Judaism. So for them to turn back will be sinning against the knowledge of the truth that they already had. And this knowledge of the truth and this sinning would cause discipline to come to them. And so this is that willful sin that the writer is talking about. This passage is addressed to a specific group of Hebrew believers who were thinking about going back to Judaism. And as a result, they would receive physical punishment for their sin. This passage is not talking about that a believer can lose their salvation. It's not saying that at all. As we'll see, it causes problems if you teach that. Nor is this passage teaching that these people are just mere professors of Christ, but they're not possess possessors of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a way that some people present this as well. They say, well, yeah, these guys, they just profess to know Christ. And so by the fact that they leave, it, it only just shows the fact that they're going to hell. And, that, and that's what the judgment's talking about. Well, if you look at the context, it causes some problems because it doesn't appear that these people are non-believers. Verse 26, the writer here says, we, if we don't heed these things. So he's putting himself in that same category as these folks. Also, the warning of discipline is seen at the end of verse 30 only applies to God's people. He quotes Deuteronomy there and he says, hey, God will discipline, God will judge his people. So this judgment is coming because they hold their higher accountability, or as we learned last week, to whom much is given, much is required. Yes, God judged other nations in, uh, uh, you know, during the Old Testament, but it was to Israel that he really focused on because they were his people in the same way these folks were his people. In verse 35, it says that these believers were to press forward to the reward seat of Christ. They weren't to go back on their confidence. They were to press forward so they can receive the reward that was stored up for them in heaven. 
And so it's talking about genuine believers here. Now, obviously, like anybody, we don't know the state of a person's heart. And so only God does. But, you know, but this believer, as we do at church, we address, you know, this group as, as believers. And, you know, and the Lord ultimately knows a, a person's heart. So this would be the context of, of what he's addressing. Now, notice this. These people were not to commit a willful sin. And if they were to commit a willful sin, it would be very bad. Why? Notice this. Because there would, there would be no longer a sacrifice for sins. If you commit this willful sin, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, first, it could be understood logically. If they had turned their back on Jesus, what sacrifice is there to forgive sin outside of Jesus? There is no sacrifice. He already approved that in chapters 9 and 10, that Christ fulfilled the sacrifices. The veil of the temple has been ripped to top to bottom, showing that the sacrifices of the Old Testament are no longer valid. There is no more sacrifice. So if you turn from Jesus and you go back to Judaism, what's going to forgive your sin? Not those sacrifices that you offer. So that's a, not a good thing. But second, I believe that the main point of this here is the writer is addressing what's called a presumptuous sin as described in the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 29 through 31, we're told that there was, in the Old Testament, something called a presumptuous sin in which a person would reach a point of no return in which no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. And that's what he says here in verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And so these believers, they need to heed the warning label before they went on sinning willfully. Returning back to Judaism would not bring peace and joy as they thought, but rather it would bring a certain expectation of judgment. They could know for sure that they were going to be judged. In, in modern terms, they would be hurting for certain kind of thing, right? They can know that. Now, what judgment is the writer talking about? Well, it's linked to the day approaching, as mentioned at the end of verse 25. And I believe that this day is referring to the day that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 23, verse 37 through chapter 24, verse 2. Jesus was talking to his disciples there. They came up on the mountain, and, and after Jesus got them rebuking the Pharisees and scribes for their hypocrisy, that they only worshiped him outwardly, they were blind leaders of the blind. Then he says, hey, judgment's going to come, and, and you know, you're not going to see me again. So he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on with his disciples to the temple mount, and they say, Lord, look at all these beautiful stones of this temple. And he says, yeah, I, I tell you, not one stone shall be left upon another, but it shall be destroyed. So he talked about a judgment that would come. This judgment would come upon that generation that rejected their Messiah that first century generation who rejected Jesus. And Israel did reject a Messiah. Just as the prophets foretold, their Messiah came. He did the, the signs of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 bears witness of that. And they said, no, we don't care. He's demon-possessed. He's not a Pharisee like, like we're looking for. He's not going you know, to establish a political kingdom. We don't, we don't think that he's the Messiah. And his miracles that he's doing, he's only doing those by the basis of Satan. He's demon-possessed. That was their rejection of Jesus. Mark calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that they committed. Well, as a result of this turning, God would bring judgment on that generation. 
This, ju- this judgment is described as God's fiery indignation. In other words, it will be God's swift, righteous anger against them for their sin. Judgment would come and it would devour them. Devour literally means to be eaten up, those who are his adversaries. So if those folks would cross the line and go back and join those who had rejected Jesus, that nation, those who had, don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, they would be joining with the adversaries who judgment would come and they would devour up. They would swallow them up. Now, the first century Jewish believers also believed this. This was something that was understood by Jewish Christians. It wasn't just something that the writer of Hebrews is teaching. The first Christian sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost had this fact in it. There he preached to a group of Jewish believers. He preached about Christ and how they had crucified the Messiah. The blood was on their hands. And they was like, well, what are we supposed to do? We, we, you know, we crucified our Messiah. He said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to repent, believe in Jesus, and then you need to be identified with him and no longer with the Jewish nation. And by doing that, you repent and be baptized by the authority of Jesus. And then he says, be saved from this wicked generation. So they were saved by faith, and then their baptism identified them with Christ. They would no longer be identified with that nation which crucified their Messiah. That judgment would come. And so he, he commanded them. So to sum up, the writer is not talking about the great tribulation. He's not talking because this would be a day soon coming. It wasn't the great tribulation. Nor is he talking about a believer going to hell but he's talking about the physical near judgment that will come upon Israel and their temple. And if these believers would cross that line, they would be associated with those folks who would face that judgment. This was brought out even further, the fact that it's physical judgment in verses 28 and 29. The writer says, if anyone has rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of his covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Now, as I mentioned, God gave Israel certain guidelines in the law. He laid down certain rules, right? If they committed an unintentional sin, they can bring sacrifices to the temple. And that sacrifice could be sacrificed for them in the nation. But God established in his law that there were certain presumptuous sins in which there was no sacrifice or no repenting of. Now, it doesn't mean that God wouldn't forgive them. God did forgive them on the Day of Atonement. He would cover the sins of the nation, right? So their sins were forgiven on the basis of their faith in that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But there were certain sins committed in which physical punishment would come upon that person. There was no restoring of it. So, for example, under the law of Moses... If a person committed a premeditated sin, such as adultery, murder, apostasy, which we see in this passage, or even breaking the Sabbath day, if a person was convicted by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that person would be taken to the nation and they would be stoned to death. They would die for that sin. Now, that doesn't mean that God would send them to hell. They were forgiven based on their faith on the Day of Atonement. But yet, because of their sin, their willful sin, they crossed the line. No amount, of, no amount of repenting would change the fact that physical punishment would come. And so that's what the writer is arguing here. Notice he applies that to the Hebrew situation. He applies it from the lesser to the greater. He says, so if God brought death to those who despise God's law, 
and the new covenant supersedes God's law and is greater, how much more could they expect physical judgment to come? So if these guys, man, if you go back to Judaism, you're sinning against God, you're committing apostasy, and God will discipline those who do so. There would be a threefold witness against them in committing this sin. Look at this threefold witness here. We see it in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the, in the sin they commit. First, they would trample the Son of God underfoot. They would trample the Son of God underfoot. Now, Jesus told a parable of the wicked vine dresser. Remember that parable? He said, hey, the Father had this vineyard, and the, this owner did, and he committed it to certain servants. He went away, and he would send different servants to check up on this vineyard, and when these guys who were working in the vineyard saw these guys coming, they, they would kill them, you know, and persecute them and beat them. And so finally at the end, the guy said, hey, I'm going to send my own son to them. And the, guy, and the people said, hey, look, his own son's coming. What should we do with him? And they killed the son. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, well, what should he do with these people? And they said, well, he, he, he should discipline them for that. And he said, yeah, exactly. And so, and this is what was going on with the adversaries, those who reject Christ. God sent his own son to Israel, and they persecuted him, and they rejected him. So discipline would come on those who did so. They were basically slapping God in the face. So if these folks would go back across the line and associate with the adversaries, they would be trampling the Son of God underfoot just like them. To trample underfoot means that they would believe that Christ was deserving of his death. Christ died a, a horrible death, which not even Roman citizens would die. They would only crucify criminals and things. And so them putting him, them across the line would be saying, hey, yeah, we, we agree with the nation that he should be trampled underfoot. He's, you know, he's a sinner. He blasphemed, and so he should be crucified. He said he was the son of God. That's, that's sinning against God. Second, they would be counting the blood of the covenant, notice, by which they were sanctified, a common thing. Notice the person doing this was sanctified by the blood of Jesus, by which he was sanctified. Jesus died for all men, yes. But only those who put their faith in Jesus are justified, declared righteous, are sanctified positionally, means set apart and holy, right? Saints. And, born, and, and the reason why we have that is because we're born again. So our basis for justification and sanctification is because we're born again. So these believers were born again. The blood of Jesus had sanctified them. They believed it. They, they put their faith in the Lord, just as we have. But yet going back to Judaism would be given a witness to everybody else in Judaism as they came back. Hey, look, there's Jake, the Jesus freak. He's, he's coming back. He's sacrificing again. Why is he back? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I just want to come back to you. I, I think it's real. Oh, so what you're saying then is that the blood of Jesus wasn't really anything then, right? It's just a common thing. It's, you know, it's, it means nothing. It, it has no power to save. If it was, you would continue on. And so they would be sinning against Christ, saying that his death was meaningless. It, it, it meant nothing. It was common. Third, they would be insulting the spirit of grace. Stephen in Acts 7 preached a masterful sermon to, to the religious leaders and accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit as their fathers had. He went through it. I love Stephen. He went through and he says, hey, guys, by the way, you know, look at your fathers here. And he went through and saw how throughout the Old Testament they had resisted God's servants. And in the end, he said, which of the prophets haven't your father stoned or killed? You guys were the ones who resisted the prophets. 
And then he applies it to them. He said, you stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers do. Stephen wasn't Calvinist. He believed that by God's grace, freeing the will, a person could resist the wooing of the Holy Spirit on their heart. A little side note there, right? And so, I mean, so, you know, so, so here he preached them and, and they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And so if these believers here were to go back, they'd be resisting the Holy Spirit. They'd be insulting the Spirit because the Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those things were all based around the person and work of Jesus in the gospel. So them turning their back on Christianity would be saying that the Holy Spirit's a liar and that he's not telling the truth about Jesus. And so it was a threefold witness against them. And if they were, a person was physically judged under the law, how much more could they expect physical judgment to come if they sinned against the threefold witness of God and salvation? Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is faithful to his word. He's not an impartial judge. He's just and true. Moses brought this out. It's one of his farewell sermons here in the end of the book of Deuteronomy. He gave a song here in, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. And the writer here quotes this psalm, this prof these prophetic words of Moses. And he used these things as, hey guys, listen to these prophetic words. If you don't respond here, God will be faithful to judge just as he was in the Old Testament. God was faithful and just to judge his people. You don't wanna cross the line and tempt the judge. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, Israel had this testimony throughout their history, right? They had tested God. They had turned their back on God, right? They had sided with the adversaries and what happened? God judged his people, right? He used wicked nations to judge them. This happened to the generation which refused to enter into the land of Canaan. They came to the border of Canaan Barnea and God said, enter the promised land. They sent spies and they came back and said, nope, we're not entering the land. We're staying right here. And God said, okay, well, because of your disobedience across the line, the entire generation is gonna wander in the wilderness and die in the wilderness. You're not gonna enter the land. Now the nation repented. We're told that in the next chapter, they did repent. But yet, because of their sin, they received physical judgment. They died in the wilderness. What about that generation during the days of Jeremiah? Because Israel had committed abomination and idolatry, God said, okay, I'm bringing the Babylonian Empire to come to destroy your temple and to judge you. Now, people were still getting saved. People were still believing in the Lord. There's believers like Jeremiah. And so God wasn't saying, okay, nobody else can get saved. It's not saying at all. But because they had crossed that line, physical persecution will come. Now, what about individuals? It has happened to certain individuals in the Old Testament. Think about Moses and Aaron. Moses was a righteous man. He was saved, right? But Moses went out and struck the rock, which God told him not to do. Aaron, you know, um, was also with Moses. And God said, okay, guys, because you misrepresented me, you crossed the line. You're not going to enter into the land but you're gonna die a physical death here outside the land. They were still saved, but they crossed the point of no return. Physical judgment will come on them. The same would be true if these believers would cross the line in that first century. A judgment was coming on the nation of Israel. 
the revolt began in 64 to 66. They finally experienced peace for a time, but then in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, only four years, four to, four to six years, depending on when you date the book, 66, 64, four to six years from when the writer wrote this book, how long it took for them to actually receive it, we don't know. Four to six years came, just as the writer predicted, Titus and the Roman legions came in. He came in with all of his garrisons. He destroyed the temple and they killed over a million Jews who were in that area. This was a warning to these believers. If you go back, you could be associated with these people who are gonna receive physical punishment for going back. They could escape this. How could they escape it? Well, they can continue to press forward and apply the warning that the writer had given them. So that's the context of this passage. It's not talking about losing your salvation. It's not talking about, you know, unbelievers. It's talking about true believers, but it has a first century context and it must be understood in that. And the same thing with Hebrews 6. So don't let anybody teach you any different, right? So we can stand strong. We can, okay, whew, uh, I'm not gonna lose my salvation tonight. That's good, right? I mean, I've had some pastors tell me that I was in sin because I didn't give an altar call every Sunday and teach because of Hebrews 10, willful sin. Well, if you say willful sin, what willful sin? If you just make any sin up and then there's no sacrifice anymore. So anybody who sins willfully, which all sin is willful, by the way, you're dead. So sorry, you know, it, 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 it doesn't fit the context. It, it's taking past out of context. So now how do we apply this tonight? How can we apply this tonight? Well, while, you know, not everybody falls over dead when they sin willfully, right? Obviously, there were some cases in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 11, when they were coming to the communion table in an unworthy manner, and there was a sin unto death, whatever that is that John was talking about. Some were actually being physically um, disciplined, Ananias and Sapphira were physically disciplined, right? But we have true warnings in the scripture that effects do come if we do sin willfully against God. Let me just read to you two of them, kind of set the context in what I'm talking about here. Paul said in Galatians chapter six, verses seven through eight, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will reap corruption. He who sows to the spirit will reap everlasting life. One more, James, we studied it a couple weeks ago. Great study. You should look it up if you haven't heard it. Chapter one, verse 13 through 16. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Both of these passages warn believers about being deceived. Paul said, don't be deceived. James says, hey, don't be deceived. Choosing willful sin brings corruption, it brings bondage, it only brings hurt in the end. Again, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, your physical death, you know, we're not saying that, but it does bring bondage and corruption. Maybe in some cases it could, but I mean, only the Lord ultimately knows that. But we need to make sure that we're not desensitized to the warnings that we have in the scriptures it's easy to become desensitized because sometimes we see these things and we see people living in sin and we think, oh, it's, I guess it's not that bad, right? But we need not be desensitized, neither by the world, the flesh, or Satan. They tried to desensitize Eve there in the garden when the enemy came to her and said, hey, 
eat of this tree? She said, no, I can't. God said, if I eat of it, I'll, I'll die. And he said, you won't surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. So she said, oh, sounds good to me. She took of the fruit and ate it. And the enemy often will tempt us and say, hey, you can sin willfully. You can choose to cross this line or whatever it might be. And it's, and it's not really going to hurt you. It's not really going to affect you in the long run. You know, God's really holding you back from what is ultimately good. We need to follow the warning of the writer of Hebrews. God's warnings can be trusted. We need to follow the warning of the Hebrews. God's warnings must be applied. Sin brings corruption. It brings, it brings distance between us and the Lord. And ultimately, if we continue to give into it, it'll grab a hold of us and ensnare us. And it leads us to death. It could be the death of your family around you. As you destroy your marriage, you destroy your life, you destroy your witness, you destroy your walk. I mean, really think about it. Behind this passage, these Hebrews going back to Judaism, think about what it would do with their witness. It would totally shipwreck their witness to their whole community around them. We've seen pastors do that, right? We've seen believers that we know do that. And God gives us a warning. Don't do it. And if these believers would heed his warning, they wouldn't be in that 70 AD judgment. And if we heed his warning, we won't look back years from now and think, well, why did I do it, right? So let's apply the Lord's word and move forward in his grace.